Father, thank you for your word. We are so grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wasn't so bad. I usually go through a couple iterations of manuscripts. You did not want to hear that one. <laughs> well, for whatever reason, growing up, I was fascinated with knights in shining armor, King Arthur's court, talks about kingdoms and castles and whatnot. And before computers and gaming came along, I think I mentioned this before, us kids in the 80s had to use our imaginations a lot more. And I remember fondly those days where my friends and I, some of those friends were real, would play make-believe adventures fighting foes and protecting our castle and fighting for a make-believe king for our make-believe kingdom. And when you think about the word kingdom, you think what? Vast lands, huge castles, nobles, knights and kings, and normal everyday people living in its protection. You might think about power, authority, and strength. Well, back in Jesus' day, many of the Jews were hoping for such a king, such a Messiah, to come to this earthly realm and build an empire, so to say to allow the Jews to rise up and take their rightful place in society. Perhaps you could say to be the top of the world, no longer being oppressed by neighboring nations. This is why Jonah suffered so much in reaching and doing ministry to the Ninevites because they oppressed his nation, his people, even his hometown. And so a lot of Jews by the time of Jesus's life said, no more, we want the Messiah. We want our kingdom now. But eventually, they saw that this Jesus obviously was not what they were expecting nor hoping for. And Jesus had to constantly redefine what the kingdom of God actually was. He had to define it over and over and over again. A totally otherworldly, countercultural idea that was very puzzling to Jesus' listeners, even to his own disciples, if you remember from the Gospels. Actually, even for modern-day Christians today, there have been many theological battles pertaining to this topic, even all the way through history, through the medieval period and the medieval church, to the time of the Reformation in the 15 and 1600s, to the mid-1900s here in the United States. Huge battles were fought over the proper interpretation of the kingdom of God. But before we get into all of that, let's simply just go to the text and see before us the example Jesus grants us when describing himself what is the kingdom of God. Verse 18 again, he said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, if you look there in verse 18, it starts with therefore. And that's probably a reference to the passage right before this. When Jesus heals a woman who was disabled by a spirit for 18 years and the ruler of the synagogue tried to rebuke Jesus for doing this healing on the Sabbath, and Jesus rebukes all of them, calling them hypocrites. It was perfectly good for Jesus to heal an ailing woman who was suffering for 18 years, even if it was on the Sabbath. And people rejoice at the miracles and good work Jesus was performing. And so get this, Jesus ties what just happened for an opportunity to talk about what the kingdom of God is like, and more on this connection later. But let's look at his first example. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took 
and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, a large tree. Now, in that period, 2,000 years ago, and in that region now, the mustard seed was seen as the smallest of all seeds. Uh, children here, you could ask your parents to, to Google that for you or to perhaps buy and order some of your own. Way smaller than even your pinky nail. The smallest of all seeds. But it was well known that the mustard seed could grow into an 8 to 12 feet high tree and have huge leafy branches where indeed birds of the air could finally live. A place of refuge, as the text says. I've seen the pictures of modern-day mustard trees, and they're quite imposing when considering it came from such a tiny seed. Most scholars interpreted this way, and I definitely agree with their thought, that Jesus is teaching his followers that the kingdom of God has a seemingly small, insignificant beginning, but that it would flourish and be seen for all it's worth in the end. Meaning this. The Jews, listening to Jesus, were expecting a political, powerful regime to come through the Messiah where they would rule with their king and flourish politically and militarily. This was their wrongful interpretation of the promise. Not all Jews interpreted this way, of course, but most of them did, including most of the religious leaders in his day. But talking about small and insignificant of beginnings is Jesus himself. Jesus was born humbly in a barn. In all humility, he came to seek and save, not those who thought they had it all together, but he says, I came to seek and save the lost. And he performed miracles to heal blind people, disabilities, as this chapter shows us, to show that he has come, the Messiah, in compassion and spiritual power. But Jews in their day didn't want that. Again, they wanted the kingdom that we thought of growing up and imagining, a realm, vast lands, huge stores of gold, and enormous armies prompting all other nations to finally fear Israel. But this Jesus from Nazareth, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, and him spewing all these different types of doctrines and teaching and this quote-unquote gospel, and that it would be marked not by power, but by humility and sacrifice. Even, he says to first his own disciples, his own sacrificial death on the cross, the most embarrassing, shameful way to, to die in their day, that's going to happen to our awaited Messiah? That was ludicrous. That was nonsensical to them. They didn't want anything to do with this thought. Friends, there was a, a scholar, a theologian named George Ladd. Not many lay Christians actually ever heard about him. But if you went to any good gospel seminary for training for ministry, you would have heard the name George Ladd. He, of course, wasn't a perfect theologian. But he wrote a most important, game-changing book in the 1950s called The Gospel of the Kingdom that really helped soothe the bitter divide between scholars and Christians on how to interpret what is the kingdom of God. Was the kingdom of God already here? Was it something to wait for when Christ returns? And the answer, George Ladd said, was both. If you ever heard the phrase already but not yet, a theological category and term and phrase, a phrase coined by a Reformed theologian, 
um, Gerhard, his boss, from Princeton. Well, George Ladd, a little bit later, was the guy that first brought the phrase to prominence, and especially from his book on the kingdom. But what is the already but not yet phrase all about? For example, we are already called saints of God. Our men studied this together last Thursday in Ephesians. We are already called saints of God, a holy set-apart people, but we are not yet void of sinfulness until Christ returns. We are continually being sanctified, something we defined last week, conformed gradually into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Already saints of God, yet still sinners. We are already saved, but we have not yet experienced the full culmination of salvation that is to be completed when Christ returns. Not that our salvation is not guaranteed or that we're only partially saved, but we won't experience the full benefit of our salvation until Christ returns. But of course, the already but not yet phrasing was meant to be first used for the kingdom of God. When Christ came and then died for our sins, this is the gospel, when Christ came and then died for our sins, took and incurred the wrath that we deserved on himself, was buried, and then three days later rose again in victory. The inauguration of the kingdom of God in the new covenant had commenced. He is the fulfillment and the fullness of the kingdom. But as Jesus is teaching us in this example, we won't fully experience the full reveal of the kingdom of God until the finality of all things when Christ comes for his people. The kingdom of God is already making its presence felt here on earth, but is not yet fully revealed in all its glory. So it might look small at first, Jesus says, this tiny mustard seed, but it'll someday be seen in its utterly magnificent glory. And here's where George Ladd helps us as he defines the kingdom of God. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. He says, it is a rule, not a realm. It is a rule, not a realm. George Ladd says, he says the kingdom can be defined as the reign of God. So shorthand, it's the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. The kingdom of God is not about land, space, not about a realm on this earth as in some type of geographical boundary or for a nation. And this is so important to get, church. The kingdom of God is about the reign and rule of God over his people. You see, how did George Ladd get this? He didn't discover it by coming up with this novel idea, and this is going to sell a lot of books. But he got it by going back to the scriptures and doing a dedicated study and all the references in the scriptures to the kingdom of God. Who taught him this? Who teaches us about the kingdom? Well, it's the Savior Jesus Christ, of course. And so when you let the scriptures dictate your practice and thinking, you'll line up with what God is revealing about himself but not a reading into the text, whatever you hope or want the text to say. We do that all the time. I do that. You do that. A lot of people try to interpret what the kingdom of God is. They want to read into the text their own agendas, their own desires. That's what the Jews did back then, too. They wanted to believe the kingdom of God was something totally different than what the Bible was pointing to and fail to see the one component that makes the kingdom of God so understandable, seeing Jesus Christ for who he really is. More on that in a moment. But let's look at the second metaphor he uses, the second parable. Verse 20, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? 
It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now what makes bread rise is the leaven. Leaven, the, the, the yeast that is mixed in with flour and water, it ferments it, it starts to multiply, and, if the, and the dough grows incrementally over time, pretty quickly. You don't quite get this in the English, but one scholar, well, multiple scholars noted that three measures of flour mixed with leaven would produce, do you know how much bread? Enough bread for about 100 to 150 people from just a small beginning. Have you ever seen those yeast pellets that bakers put into their starter dough? They're tiny, tiny, and wham, when you mix that in and it's hidden within the flour and water, those tiny pellets cause such an increase in capacity. But when you sit there, and I'll never do this, I'll, I'll eat what you bake, but I, I'll never do this on my own. But when you sit there and stare at these yeast pellets mixed in, you say, Robin, okay, this is how you make bread. I'm like, okay, but nothing is happening. What is going on? It doesn't just expand in a minute. You have to wait, and slowly, but sure enough, it'll expand and reveal the full-blown dough to work with. I enjoy watching cooking shows. Again, I watch, I don't do. I, I was watching cooking shows or documentaries of artists and bakers. I, that's what I do in my free time. And sometimes they show a time lapse of a starter dough from above a camera mixed with yeast. They put a little moist towel over the bowl with the dough. And the camera records over time what happens to the dough, the exponential expansion. The already but not yet concept was first taught by Jesus, and he uses this example to show the principles behind the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was already there, being seen and felt in Jesus' ministry and, of course, in his sacrifice. But, of course, Jesus knew the full-blown reveal of his kingdom would be finally revealed later at his second coming. Again, it's about the rule and the reign of the king in his kingdom, not about the realm or any physical connotation on earth. Theologian Phil Riken adds this to the definition of kingdom and about this passage. He says, quote, the kingdom of God is the rule of God, the exercise of his royal authority. One of these two parables shows the extensive growth of the kingdom. It's talking about the mustard seed, while the other parable shows its intensive growth. That's about the yeast and the bread. You see, let proper theology impact your practical daily perspective and living. This is one of the a perfect example of how this is true. If the kingdom of God is already inaugurated, then guess what? It's not up to us to usher it in. There is no pressure to say, I wonder if I don't try hard enough if God's going to reveal the kingdom of God. If the full-blown kingdom of God is going to be displayed only when Christ returns and a new heaven and earth will be created and we can live in sinless relation to Christ the King, that we don't have to worry about making this earth in and of itself a makeshift realm, a Christian utopia or something like that. I, I'll be honest, sometimes I daydream and I imagine a Christian utopia here on earth even before Jesus returns. And oh, it, it would be so just great if there was no violence, if there's no racism, if there's no injustice, of course we could hope and dream. But that's not what Jesus was talking about in terms of the kingdom of God. 
If you keep thinking the kingdom of God is about making this world wonderful and made afresh, you're missing the point of the kingdom of God. Sure, we are to be obedient, good citizens. Sure, we are to do good works and help the poor and weak. Sure, we are to fight to protect the sanctity of life and call out injustice. But it's not our jobs to recreate the world, to look renewed, and so on. That's improper application of what Jesus is trying to say. Now, don't get me wrong here. When we have gospel people that live out gospel truths in response to the gospel, <laughs> cultures and societies can change. I say amen to that. But the power lies within God. The kingdom of God is about the rule and reign over people's hearts. It's about the ministry of Christ-centered on his gospel to be proclaimed, proclaimed and see it do its work in mighty power and might, even though they crucified him. The kingdom of God was still going forth. This is where other passages help us. Remember the paragraph right before this, the lady with the spirit that made her disabled. She was bent over and couldn't straighten herself, so Jesus healed her. That's the kingdom of God being felt. His care and compassion that ultimately pointed to his final work of saving work on the cross. Or how about Luke eleven twenty? But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Remember, it's about rule and reign. How about Luke chapter 17, verse 20? Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. How exciting is that? How encouraging is that? Even if the world is upside down. Again, the phrasing is in the midst of you is pointing to the concept of rule and reign and not about physical realm. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and is unseen with the visible eye, but it is indeed felt. That's why so many Christians today wanting to transform our city is noble, is an understandable thing. At the root, there's a lot of compassion there. But I'm afraid that emphasis is missing the point of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a spiritual matter, a spiritual thing. It's about reign and rule of Christ centered on the proclamation of the gospel of his life and death and resurrection that transforms not physical outward things at first, but the heart and soul. Sure, the physical and outward can change as a consequence of only the inward transformation of the gospel. I think so many times Christians say, no, let's work and labor hard to work on the physical, the seen, the outward, and Let's just hope the inward changes too. This is not Jesus' agenda. Inside first. When Jesus prayed to the Father in Luke 11, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, he is talking about the rule of God to come, salvation to come to the lost, not some earthly kingdom being built, not some earthly physical transformation, but the gospel of the kingdom of God to come and save lost souls for his glory and that his people... Ephesians 2, that his people will live under his rule and reign. The great Australian theologian Graham Goldsworthy, in his book, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture, he says the kingdom of God, this is helpful, is God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. I'll say that again. 
The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And he traces that from Genesis in the garden all the way to the final consummation at the end of Revelation. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. In the pattern then, Gold, Goldsworthy says, Jesus the Christ is king. God's people is the spiritual Israel, those united in Christ and to the promise. That's God's people. And then in God's place, that's, that's in the new temple where Christ dwells at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, God dwells with his people through his spirit. That's his place. Whatever nation or country or situation, the places where Christ dwells through his spirit. And then finally, under God's rule, God's rule is the rule of Christ over your hearts and his people. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. All of this made possible, how? In the new covenant of the work, finished work of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to add 22 there, verse 22, even though it kind of introduces a new paragraph, because Jesus went on teaching about this kingdom in all the towns. So too, we, the church, in his great commission to the church, are called to continue to preach and teach good news about this kingdom, for the church not to just see this done locally, but in the great commission to all the nations. I have a couple quick applications then. Number one is this, pray for greater awareness of the kingdom. Pray for greater awareness of the kingdom. I need to pray this, we need to pray this as a church. Pray for greater awareness of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is unseen, but its presence is all around us. And when a single soul is saved, that's the kingdom of God being revealed a bit more. When believers continually see their lives and hearts changed by the gospel and that leads to loving people and loving God and forgiving others and bearing burdens and feeding the hungry, this is God's reign and rule over his people and we need to be made aware of that and to be thankful. It's actually happening at our church in the midst of us whether we realize it or not. And some of you might say, well, if we just only had a certain amount of programs or if we just had a little bit more resources or members of the church, then, okay, maybe God's doing a thing, but it's already happening. When we see gospel transformation, when you practice one of the 60 or so one another's in the New Testament, when you practice them, confess your sins to one another, share burdens with one another, Mourn and rejoice with one another. Admonish one another. When you practice all those things, love one another to your brother or sister in Christ, oh, pray that God makes you aware, oh, this is the kingdom of God. When you forgive, when you serve, oh, so many of you guys serve so faithfully. It's very humbling to see where nobody sees what you're doing, but God sees. And when you serve, you serve directly to Christ. Oh, when you sing his praises in unison, when you see sin mortified in your heart, when you delight in God's holy word again, when you share in communion at the Lord's table, pray for this greater awareness of the kingdom of God. The list goes on and on. When the Roman Empire was throwing Christians into fires 2,000 years ago, 
or crucifying and beheading followers of Jesus Christ. Do you think the early church thought, I guess the kingdom of God is not really here. I guess the kingdom of God is losing some steam. Absolutely not. They didn't say, I guess we didn't do enough to change the world we live in. Absolutely not. The kingdom of God was ushering in. And nobody and nothing could stop what God had started, history tells us. The kingdom of God was unseen to those who hated God, but known amongst his church and his people. I wish I could just time travel, just even for a week, to huddle with them, being persecuted, but having faith, strength in faith, and nourished by hope to say, yes, the kingdom of God is here. This segues into our next application, number two. Pray that we do not despair when we don't see drastic change. Pray that we do not despair when we don't see drastic change. Oh, that's even in my heart individually. How could God use little old me, a sinner? You might feel that same way. I am just roughed up in my life. How could God ever do anything for his kingdom through me? Well, the principle is God uses small things. Individually, but yes, to the church corporately. And so do not despair when we don't see drastic change in our hearts, in our culture, in our land, in our church. Don't despair if we don't see immediate change. My friend who served in the Middle East, I won't say which country, over 10 years hardly saw a convert because it was such opposition against Christianity. Oh, should I say to him, just quit? Oh, you're not efficient enough in kingdom advancement. Or perhaps, rather, I should encourage him to say, what you may see is small in human eyes, in human terms, but God can eventually use this for the greater reign and rule of God in this place that you're at, and of course, in your own heart. Perhaps not with my missionary friend in his lifetime, oh, but those seeds that were planted can produce a hundredfold in ways he could have never imagined. Jesus is using the parable to say, this is the hidden work of God. Don't be discouraged if you can't see how the kingdom is being re revealed. This is God's work. J.C. Ryle said once, let us learn from this parable never to despair of any work for Christ because its first beginnings are feeble and small. Perhaps we may feel feeble and small, yet we do not despair for this is God's sovereign work. In first century letters of Roman authorities would show that they tried to contain and stop the spread of these annoying Christians. But of course that wasn't possible. In China, the underground church today has flourished. The government or any regime, regime tried desperately to stop this, but they couldn't. In East Africa, I was Zooming with a a pastor, a church planter in East Africa last week in my kind of work with global church planting. And he said, amidst distorted gospels and false teaching all around him, he said, you know what, that's not going to be our take. We're going to faithfully serve by proclaiming a true, unadulterated gospel. And I was looking at videos he was sending and pictures of 
that's so excited about moving into a new space that can maybe house 20 chairs, bathrooms in the backyard and outhouse, and yet they were delighted. And if they say, well, Robin, it's been so hard financially or with getting people or this and that, oh, never despair. God can use weakness and small things for the kingdom of God. God will reveal the kingdom to them in ways unimaginable. And to the ends of the earth, we pray. Oh, email one of our missionaries, remind them of this glorious reminder and truth. Something along the lines of a final quote, again from Phil Riken, who said, quote, from a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, the kingdom of God grows, at times invisibly and almost imperceptibly, until it reaches all nations with its transforming powers. When Jesus gave this declaration of the commission to the disciples, they must have believed, but perhaps their faith was weak. Perhaps they whispered to one another, do you really think this is going to reach the ends of the earth? Oh, if they could see now, some 2,000 years later, how the kingdom of God has been ushered in to reach all the nations with transforming power. Thinking of the parable of the mustard seed into this tree that birds could come and find refuge. Actually, that's a, a reference, almost a picture found in Ezekiel of people, including the Gentiles, the birds of the air, finding refuge in the true spiritual Israel, which is the church, all because of the revelation of the kingdom of God. Again, pointing back to Ephesians chapter 2. So thanks be to God that we can be part of this kingdom only through the finished work of the Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith alone, of course, in the Son, and of course, only by grace alone to truly believe and accept. And so, church, Westminster Presbyterian, we say, thy kingdom come, O thy will be done. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, you are so patient with us and how we try to digest and interpret scripture. So many times we get it wrong. But thank you, Lord, for pointing us to your word and that Jesus teaches us directly, even thousands of years later, to the church, how to think about him and the spotlight on him and that he is the culmination of the kingdom of God. So Lord, help us to not despair, but to keep marching forward as faithful Christians soldiers of Christ who will love on one another here but love on this world that so desperately needs the gospel to not shun them and kick them to the side but to embrace them with the mercy that you have shown us with grace with open hands before them pointing to the finished work of the son Lord help us to revel in the kingdom of God that whatever happens to our mortal bodies here, Lord, we have the hope of the resurrection and the life eternal and the perfection of the kingdom of God forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen.